Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. I'd like to thank NYU for inviting me to come here this evening. Um, particularly, this is the year of Zayed. We still have a little while to go. And something that I've felt over the course of this year is that it is important where we can to explain you know, who Sheikh Zayed was for the younger ones here, the millennials, those who have recently arrived in the UAE, or even my little daughter down here. Sheikh Zayed is almost a legend now, okay? But for those of us that lived through the years of Sheikh Zayed, and particularly those of us who interacted with him, like Nick Cochran Dart and Martin Fahaga, both of whom worked with him very closely, you know, he's more than a legend, okay? And I think it really is important to try to talk about some of the aspects of what he was like as a man. That's the man we remember, and that's the man that I think anyone who dealt with him feels it's important that the new generation know, Emiratis and non-Emiratis. So what I want to do this evening is to run over a few anecdotes about Sheikh Zayed's engagement, personal engagement, with the country's natural and cultural heritage. Now, so some of those uh, anecdotes relate to my own personal experiences, and some of them come from other sources or sometimes from written sources uh, and from conversations that I've been privileged to have over the years. Let me just start by telling you or quoting to you, reading to you. It'll be up on screen, but I'll read it for those who might find it difficult to read from a distance. Sheikh Zayed talking about conservation. He said, we cherish our environment because it is an integral part of our country, our history, and our heritage. On land and in the sea, our forefathers lived and survived in this environment. They were able to do so only because they recognized the need to conserve it, to take from it only what they needed to live, and to preserve it for future generations. He also went on to explain why he himself came to learn and believe the... Oh, let me switch this off. The, apologies for that. How he came to learn the importance of conserving wildlife. And this is an extract from a book that he wrote and published in 1977 uh, about falconry. As you know, Sheikh Zayed was a passionate falconer. And he said, one day I set out on a hunting expedition in open country. My game was a large herd of gazelles spread over a wide area. I followed them and began shooting. Three hours later, I stopped to count my bag and found I had shot 14 gazelle. I pondered over this a long time. I realized that hunting with a gun was no more than an outright attack upon animals and a cause of their rapid extinction. I changed my mind 
and decided to restrict myself to falconry only. I think there are a number of Emiratis, some of whom are, of course, his sons, who perhaps one could remind about that particular commitment of their father. But I should say that although Sheikh Zayed gave up shooting as a pastime in his youth, there is at least one subsequent occasion where he did uh, use a gun. This is a naked-bellied tomb bat. You can find them in the caves of Jebel Hafid and various other places. And in 1954, there was a British scientist visiting here. He was a zoologist called David Harrison, an expert in mammals. And he was studying the mammals of Arabia. He subsequently wrote a book on it. And not many people, not many Westerners, were visiting the UAE at that time. A few oil men, but not many other people. Political officers, the occasional military, and oil men starting to, to look for oil in the deserts. But David Harrison was visiting Alain, and of course, Sheikh Zayed was curious. You know, who is this guy? He invited him to come to dinner. Sitting outside, lovely winter weather in Alain, and there were a lot of bats flying around. And David Harrison recalled that he said to Sheikh Zayed, interesting, this might be a new species. Be very interesting to see them. Bring me my gun, said Sheikh Zayed. And he shot it, shot one for him as a sample, as a specimen. Anyone who's seen bats flying around will realize it's not actually very easy to shoot bats. David Harrison was delighted, studied it, took it back. It was a new subspecies for science. So the scientific name of the subspecies is Tafosus nudiventris zaidae one of a number of species and subspecies uh, of animals uh, in the UAE that have been given names directly linked to the UAE. There are other aspects of Sheikh Zayed's concern for conservation. As you'll recall, he was talking about his hunting the gazelle and concerned that shooting would lead to their extinction. And this animal, the Arabian oryx, the maha, is something that Sheikh Zayed believed was in danger of extinction at the beginning of the 1960s. He gave orders for some animals to be captured from the wild to create the nucleus of a breeding herd. You can see the results of that breeding herd in Alain today. You can see them on Sir Baniyas. You can see them in private collections. A few years after Sheikh Zayed arranged for those animals to be captured, for captive breeding, they were extinct in the wild. So his foresight, his recognition of the need to conserve our local wildlife was reflected in that early step. He was also, of course, passionate about falconry. This, for those who don't know, uh, is an Asian hubara. I do hope that the Emiratis amongst us are aware of that. I was amazed a few months ago talking to a young Emirati in my office. And we were talking about various aspects of UAE natural history. And I said, tell me, do you know what a hubara is? 
She said, yes, it's a fish. So I said, go home. Tomorrow morning, you come and you tell me what a hubara is. Shakeside started a hubara breeding program in 1977. And out of that, it took years before there was uh, success in it. But now, through the Environment Agency and the uh, uh, breeding programs which they oversee here and in Kazakhstan and in Morocco, 50 or 60,000 birds a year are being produced. And Sheikh Zayed wanted this breeding program because he knew that the hunting of Hubara by falcons was leading to a severe decline in the population of the species, endangering them. That is no longer the situation because the breeding program he began has had a significant effect on countering the impact of population decline. But if you're hunting Hubara, and you're preserving Hubara, you have to think of these two. This is a Shaheen, a peregrine falcon. Again, endangered in the wild in some areas. And Sheikh Zayed has supported, from the early days, a captive breeding program. And what he also did, he instituted in 1995 the practice of releasing into the wild, or re-releasing into the wild, wild birds that he and other members of his family had used uh, for, for falconry. And that first uh, falcon release was in uh, Baluchistan in 1995, and subsequent releases, overseen by Sheikh Zayed, have taken place in Kyrgyzstan, in uh, Iran, uh, and Kazakhstan. It's all part of Sheikh Zayed's belief that if you want to engage with wildlife, and you want to uh, exploit wildlife, you must take care to ensure <coughs> excuse me, that the, uh, the numbers that you're taking from the wild do not have an adverse impact upon the wild populations. So that's an introduction to the conservation side. And let me just turn now briefly, and then I'll go back again to the heritage side. You will all, I hope, be aware of Sheikh Zayed's statement, history is a continuous chain of events. The present is only an extension of the past. He who does not know his past cannot make the best of his present and future, for it is from the past that we learn. And it is because of that belief in the importance of the past and his interest in the past that Sheikh Zayed was fascinated when the first Danish archaeologists came to the UAE at the end of the 1950s to work on the island of Omanau. Uh, we've have, we can read some of the results of their work uh, in a number of academic publications, but they found, they identified a previously unknown civilization that we now call the Omanau civilization because it's centered on the island of Omanau, or Sasselnachel is the alternative name. And Sheikh Zayed and his brother, Sheikh Shahbut, who was then the ruler, made a practice of visiting Omanar to see how these archaeologists were getting on. An example of the kind of tomb that was excavated there, and this one is one that has been restored. Massive collective tombs, up to 200 uh, uh, burials in them, over 4,000 years old, 4,000, 4,500 years old. 
And when Zayed went to see them, he was talking about how old is this, what's it like, where, did, where, where were they trading with, you know, seeking information. And he said to them, if you want to see mounds like these in their hundreds, you should come to Alain. Jeffrey Bibby, who was one of the archaeologists, reported in a, in a book of his, Zayed's boast of hundreds of mounds was not idle. Around us on the ridge in Jebel Hafid stood quite that number. And as our eyes accustomed themselves to the landscape, we could see mounds on every crag and crest and spur all the way to Mount Hafid itself. Zaid welcomed them to Alain, and as was the case with uh, the work on Omanar, he displayed a real interest in what they were doing, visiting them, asking what they were doing. Uh, and he also said to them, after they'd been working at Alain for a while, he said, look, there are other, other things I want to show you. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. Um, he was curious about the country's history and heritage. And in particular, he said that somewhere in the Healy area, there were a few big stones lying around on the ground. He encouraged them to come and look at it. These are the restored tombs on Jebel Hafid. But this is the site at Healy about which he was talking. It's the Healy tomb. You can go and see it. The Healy Archaeological Park, uh, in which it's uh, located, uh, has been recently refurbished by the Department of Culture and Tourism uh, and the archaeological, archaeological department now uh, being run by or directed by my friend and colleague, Professor Peter McGee, who's sitting somewhere under the floodlights at the back. For those of you who have not been to the Healy Archaeological Park, go, go and have a look. Okay. It is always useful, I think, for people in the UAE, whether they're Emiratis or expatriates, to take time just to have a look at some of the physical evidence of the UAE and what it is, okay, and its history, okay? Uh, not confining one's time to the big cities and the malls. Out there, there are things that will help not only to understand where this country came from, but also help to understand Zaid's own approach. But he knew that there was a history in this country that it always had a history. He knew that the idea that before oil there was nothing was simply not true because he lived it. He recalled the traditions, he recalled the heritage. He knew the way in which people in the past had lived and suffered and struggled and strived and survived, whether it was on the sea, on the coastline, in the desert, or on the mountain fringes. So if you look at some of these places, they will provide you with a connection to the belief in the country's history that Zayed talked about. But he was interested in so many ways in everything he saw around him. Martin Fahaga here could tell you, and perhaps you should be invited one day, to talk about Sheikh Zayed at sea uh, and the love he had for the 
maritime traditions of the, of the Emirates. But he was interested in all sorts of little things about this country's heritage and environment. And the next picture I will show you may be familiar to a lot of you. It's the Eastern Corniche, uh, the Corniche Gurum, they call it, running up the, uh, the, uh, this side of Abu Dhabi Island. It's been an important place in terms of natural history for many years. If you look at the old aerial photographs from the 1960s, you'll see that the, the mangrove forests there have grown significantly. Now, there are some areas by the Anantara that have been planted, but most of it is natural growth that has naturally grown over the years. Back in the late 1980s, more and more people were beginning to wander into the mangroves, okay? And causing damage, cutting down branches, and generally impinging upon what was a pretty uh, well-protected, well-preserved and pristine uh, part of the natural environment immediately adjacent to Abu Dhabi Island. Once the Eastern Corniche Road had been built, you know, the number of visitors increased. It was easier to, to access it because it was no longer, as it had been before, protected by being just on the edge of a military area, which all of the Eastern Corniche Road was uh, until the mid-1980s. So then Emirates Natural History Group, of which I was then a member, but there's a few others scattered around in the room, reported to Sheikh Nahyan bin Mubarak that uh, there was damage being done to the mangroves. Mangroves are, of course, quite close to the Qasr al-Baha, which was Sheikh Zayed's palace. And Sheikh Nahyan told Sheikh Zayed, Sheikh Zayed immediately ordered that the area should be protected. Police patrols were instituted to make sure that those mangroves were protected. And this was just before the channel had been cut all the way through. But what Sheikh Zayed also said to Nahyan was, are there any honeybees breeding there? Uh, sorry, uh, you know, nesting there. So I got a call one evening saying, tomorrow, from Nahyan, tomorrow we're going to the mangroves. Sheikh Zayed wants a picture of honeybee combs. I said, well, I'm not certain we'll actually find any, but let's try, okay? So early on a Friday morning, I jumped in a little boat and went across. I don't know if any of you have been in the mangroves, where you sink up to your knees in glutinous mud, but we staggered around for a bit until Sheikh Nahyan said, um, got to get back for prayers. So he left me to get on with it. And yes, there were some honeybee uh, combs, and a nice set of pictures duly made their way to Sheikh Zayed that evening. And that is actually what prompted him to sort of solidify the protection of that area. Now, it's one of our nature reserves. It's an important green lung for the city. It's now open for, you know, approved tourism through the, the kayaking and whatever that you can do. But had Sheikh Zayed not taken the decision to protect it now, it could, it could have been developed, we could have lost a lot of it. But he knew this was worth preserving, and without, without decree, you know, a word 
from Shakespeare's eyes was a decree. It had the force of a decree. And the paperwork came later. Okay. Same happened with somewhere else. This is the Al Wathba Lake, up the road, up the truck road to Elaine. Okay. It first started to form from uh, trapping rainfall when the Alain truck road was built. Okay. Before that, water would just, after heavy rainfall, would just spread out across the Sapkas and sink in. But after the building of the Alain truck road, that acted as a dam to, to hold back the water. And subsequently, treated sewage was put in from the Mafrak sewage plant. Around 1990-91, we had a good winter's rain, and all sorts of birds arrived, okay? Flamingos in the middle of the desert, and they had an unsuccessful attempt at breeding in 1992. Ducks, black-winged stilts, all sorts of wader species. You get thousands of birds there. But, of course, that attracted other things as well. It attracted people with guns. Surprise. There was a Dutch ambassador here years ago at that time called Willem Dolleman. And Willem was a fanatic bird watcher. He's the only ambassador I have ever met in the middle of a wood, in the middle of a working day with a pair of binoculars wandering around looking for rare migrants. I know he did it because I used to do it as well, and we met each other. But, you know, I was editing a newspaper. It was all right for me to be in the middle of a wood with binoculars in the middle of the day. But Willem was looking at the birds at Al-Wathba and heard the shooting, and he was worried about this. He mentioned it to Sheikh Nahyan, promptly went to Sheikh Zayed, Exide order that that was to be protected too. Police patrols were instituted. It made it a bit difficult for the bird watchers for a while um, because they'd move us on as well. But Shegzide immediately recognized that the area should be protected and gave the orders to do so. And a few years later, uh, in 1998, when there was the first successful uh, breeding of flamingos at Al Wathba, uh, a colleague of mine, a late colleague of mine called Simon Aspinall, arranged to have that reported to Sheikh Hamdan bin Zayed, who told his father, he said, right, from now on, the Environment Agency, it was called Iruda, the Environment Agency is in charge of monitoring and protecting and preserving this site. Uh, and he told Sheikh Hamdan, who was the, uh, then the chairman of the Environment Agency, sorry, vice chairman of the Environment Agency, whatever you need, the money you need, do it, but protect it. it uh, it's an important site for the UAE's biodiversity. So once again, if you like, by a process of simple luck and being able to get a message through to the right place, Sheikh Zayed immediately responded. He didn't need to be told it was important. He knew that. So he immediately gave instructions for the right uh, procedures to be taken. And now, under Environment Agency Management, al Wathba Lake is not only an international Ramsar site, it's one of the most important sites 
for breeding and for resident and for migratory uh, water birds uh, in the whole of southeastern Arabia. Sheikh Zayed was also interested, of course, in the past of our animals, of our wildlife. This is a hippopotamus jaw. And it was found in the late, you know, around 1990, 1990, by a team of specialists from the uh, Natural History Museum in London and Yale University, uh, the late Peter Wybrow, the late Professor Andrew Hill. And they were with a team down at Jebel Dana uh, doing research in the Western region, staying at what was then called the, Jebel, uh, the Dafra Hotel Jebel Dana. I, don't, I think it's, if it hasn't been knocked down yet, it's about to be knocked down. But they stayed there, and Sheikh Zayed used to keep one wing of the hotel for him. He had a rest house, but he preferred that wing of the hotel. So whenever he was down there, that's where he'd stay. And on one visit, he saw these you know, foreign-looking people coming in and out of the hotel, looking dusty and dirty and you know, coming back from a day in the field. He said, who are these people? You know, what are they doing? So they were told, Sheikh Zayed wants to see him. So Peter and Andrew and their colleagues went to see Sheikh Zayed that evening, and they took with him some of what they'd found. They showed it to Zayed. And they said, he said, what does it mean? He said, well, it's probably six, eight million years old. And it shows that at the time, this area of the UAE was not the desert we see today. It was an area of great rivers and lakes and forests, a bit like this East African savanna. And so I said, tell me more. I said, well, we had hippopotamus. It had elephants, but great big elephants, bigger than today, but with four tusks. Not two. There have been a lot of those found, or a lot of pieces of fossil elephants found in the Western region now. And they said, we had fish, we had turtles. Great rivers were here. One near Murfa, it's estimated was about 100 meters wide, okay, and slow flowing. So you had in it, you know, catfish, you had turtles and so on. So we had rivers here in the past. And Zayed said, let me tell you a story. There is a tradition, there is a legend amongst the people of the Western region that years ago, generations ago, there was a river that ran through the Sabkat Mati, which is between uh, Jebel Dana and Silla, coming out of Arabia and flowing into the sea. Oddly enough, there was, okay? There was, you know, millions of years ago, but there was thousands of years ago. And probably right up till about 4,000 BC, say 6,000 years ago, when the climate here was much, uh, much wetter than it is today, there would still have been a steady flow of water coming out of the center of, uh, of the peninsula through the Sabkat Mati to reach the Arabian Gulf. As I said, yeah, we have this story, we have this legend. Now, where on earth, or how on earth, that memory, 
had been passed down over generations that once this was a green land, once we had waters flowing into the sea. A few hundred years ago, yeah, you can understand how the memory would have survived. But a few thousand years ago, and yet somehow, Bigzide knew of this story and knew of this legend. And so did his brother, Sheikh Shahpoud, because he told uh, uh, a former British political agent, you know, much the same, you know, uh, many years earlier. So he was interested in the fossils. He wanted to know what animals were being found here. Where did they come from? And unlike some other people who say, they can't be that old, Zaid was always curious. He never said, no, 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 this is not possible. He wanted to know and to learn about his country and wanted his people to recognize the significance of the work that was being done. And that brings me on to, if the thing works, yes, brings me on to a sort of final focus, if you like. When Tim kindly introduced me, he mentioned that from 1992 to 2006, I was involved in the Abu Dhabi Islands Archaeological Survey. And that was something which, over the years, you know, achieved quite a lot in terms of looking at UAE heritage and history, um, partic particular focus on Abu Dhabi. But it was established because of Zaid. And the story of how it began is that the Emirates Natural History Group, of which I was then chairman, uh, had a practice of visiting archaeological sites around the country to visit foreign teams or local teams who were digging. Okay? We visited Peter McGee, for example, on one occasion up in Mawela, at least one occasion, and a very, very helpful person he was too. We visited sites in Ras we visited sites in Fujairah, we visited sites all over the place. And wherever possible, we made a practice of inviting uh, a leader of an archaeological team to come down and give us a talk in Abu Dhabi. And in 1991, we invited Dr. Geoffrey King, uh, then of the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, to come and give us a talk on the work he was doing at Julfar in Ras the old Islamic period port in Ras okay, from where they traded with China. And East Africa and beyond. And if we were bringing these uh, academics down to talk to us, we felt, okay, well, we, it would be good if we introduced them to Sheikh Nahyan bin Mubarak, who was the group's patron, to give him a briefing on what they were finding, partly because he was interested and partly because we knew that anything important. Sheikh Zayed would get to hear about. So Jeffrey came down one evening to give a talk in Ramadan 1991. And to be honest, I was trying to keep him awake in the majlis. Okay, he'd got up at three in the morning, worked in Rasulkhema during the day, come down here, you know, and given his talk, and then I'd take him on to the majlis. Uh, it was Ramadan, the late majlis. And it was difficult to keep Jeffrey awake. Not the first time, not the last, but it was difficult. So we were talking, you know, what, what could be done in terms of archaeology in, uh, in Abu Dhabi? <coughs> he said, well, 
You could do a bit more work on the islands, okay? There'd been a bit of work done in the early 70s, but then virtually nothing else except on Omanna. So when we saw Nahian, we suggested this to him. He said, good idea. I'll let you know. Next day I got a call. Nahian had been to Zayed, and Zayed said, yes, I want the project to start now, and they should look at Delma, they should look at Sirbanias, of course, Sheikh Zayed's own private island, and the island of Marawa, okay, which is now part of the Marawa Marine Protected Area. And I want them to start now. So I had to ask Sheikh Nahian to tell him, look, Sorry, it's coming to the end of the season. The weather's not, not very good. It takes time to put all these things together. We'll do it, you know, spring next year. Okay, and that's what we did. Put together a team, Jeffrey led. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed kindly gave us access to the air force. It's much much nicer going to places by a military helicopter, where you can, you know, they open the door and you can look out at five hugrd feet and see the islands beneath you and the dugongs moving around. It's much, you know, driving down the road to Jebeldana takes so long. But we did, we went to these three islands and found over a hundred archaeological sites that had not previously been recorded. And when the team was on Sirbaniya, Sheikh Zayed was there. And again, he said, who are these people wandering around? Invite them to dinner. So the team all went and sat with Sheikh Zayed for dinner and showed him some of the bits and pieces that had been picked up during the survey. And one of them was this, okay. just a lovely piece of plaster with decorations on it. You can see at the bottom sort of like palm scrolls or something. We didn't know what it was, but we knew it was interesting. We knew that associated with it was uh, glazed green pottery from the 6th and 7th centuries AD um, and a variety of other things. What we also showed him was some little fragments of a fairly recent kind of pottery, okay? We call it, well, archaeologists call it chocolate chipware because it's sort of a buffish ware with little stone inclusions in it, vaguely chocolate colored. We call it chocolate chipware. You've got to have a memorable name. Sheikh Zayed said, I know that. I used to use stuff like this when I was a boy. So we called it Sheikh Zaidware after that. But at the end of the season, he said, I want to know. I want to report, okay? I want to know what you found. So once the season was over, it was a, a season of nearly a month, a report was put together. Sheikh Nahian took it to Sheikh Zayed and sort of summarized it to him. And Sheikh Zayed said, thank you. This is great. I want to establish a formal project to look at the archaeology on the coast and islands of Abu Dhabi. And that's how the Abu Dhabi Islands Archaeological Survey was founded. And what he also said, music to the ears of any archaeologist, he said, I'll fund it from my private department. And that, you know, it's, it's always nice when you know you don't have to worry too much 
about funding for scientific research. And over the next few years, ADIAS worked on Sibanias, it worked on Marawa, on Delma. We found sites from Belgalem, northeast of here, to Silla and beyond in the west, uh, and deep into the desert. Sites from the Neolithic period, sites from the Iron Age, from the Bronze Age, all sorts of stuff. And Sheikh Zayed always wanted to be kept informed. And a number of people, Sheikh Nahyan being one, um, but you know, one or two other people who worked with him, uh, were, were extremely helpful to us in informing Sheikh Zayed of what we'd found. But perhaps the thing, the site, which he found most interesting was the site where this particular piece of plaster came from. And we excavated there in 1993, 1994, 1995. Beautiful, small buildings, plaster floors that were almost perfect, 1,400 years old, okay? Lovely pottery, more decorated plaster, a great big building finely laid out uh, with the, the floor plan absolutely uh, clear what it was, or clear once you'd uh, cleaned it, okay? excavated and cleaned it. But the archaeologist who was directing that excavation Dr. Joseph Elders, who's now chief archaeologist of the Church of England, responsible for all those abbeys and ruined abbeys and cathedrals you see in England. Okay, Joe was working on the site one day and so think, what, what is this place? It's too clean. Didn't find the rubbish dump. And rubbish dumps are really useful for archaeologists. So he was sort of watching the workers sort of shoveling away at the sand and saw a piece of plaster upside down, well, he didn't know it was upside down, a piece of plaster, and he picked it up and turned it over. And that is when we knew that the site on Sirbaniyas was Christian. It later became apparent from further work that it was a Christian monastery, probably founded around 600, 610 AD, uh, and fell into disuse by 750 AD. Um, so, that was surviving for at least a hundred years in the Islamic era. If you find something like that on the president's private island, you've got to tell him. Right? You can't hide it. And so I got the call to say this had been found. And I wasn't uh, on the island at the time. I was working in Abu Dhabi. And I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to tell the devoutly Muslim sheikh of a Muslim country that we found a Christian monastery on his private island? And I thought, talks a lot about tolerance, it's going to be all right. Yeah. So it came up to Abu Dhabi, and I showed Sheikh Nahyan. I said, what do you think Sheikh Zayed will say? He said he'll be absolutely delighted. So it made its way to Sheikh Zayed, which Sheikh Mohammed took it to. When we got the message coming back to us, tell them thank you and carry on, which is what we did, okay? But the other, I had the opportunity of feeding to Sheikh Zayed through 
uh, Sheikh Abdullah, who was then my minister, a variety of new information about what we were finding on Tsirbaniyas and on the other uh, on the other islands. And Sheikh Zayed was always interested in Tsirbaniyas. And he said to Sheikh Abdullah, who reported to me, this is an important part of our history. This is who we were. This is where is part of where we came from. And I know he used to talk to visiting politicians about it. I know he talked to Prince Charles of Britain about precisely this site on Sirbanias, saying how important it was in terms of the UAE's history and heritage. And something that we've seen over the last 20 years, I suppose, is the way in which, in terms of the government's policy and attitude towards religious and cultural tolerance, based upon Sheikh Zayed's own views, has become part of our national narrative. When Mohammed bin Zayed went to see the Pope a couple of years ago, thinking, what can he give the Pope? What he gave him was a one-off, finely produced book of pictures, the monastery on Sirbanias. It is part of the narrative of the UAE as a country of religious and cultural tolerance. And that's the way Zayed wanted it. Okay? He believed passionately in the importance of this country's history, in the importance of this country's uh, heritage and the evidence there was of cultural tolerance and religious tolerance. He believed passionately in that. He believed passionately too, of course, that those who corrupt and distort Islam are not worthy to be called Muslim. And I remember, this is not slightly off the subject, but I remember when, over 20 years ago, there was a particularly brutal round of killings in Algeria. And Sheikh Zayed issued a statement. He said, these are apostates. They have no right to call themselves Muslim. So that's what Zayed was in terms of religious and cultural tolerance. There's also something about what he was in terms of his love and his passion for environment and conservation here. There's one little story which I can't fortunately show a picture of. He loved gardening. I like gardening. My father wrote lots of gardening books. I was brought up with gardening. But I was surprised when I discovered that this impressive head of state, Arab head of state, desert background, used to get up in the morning and go and prune his roses. Okay? He had a passion for wildlife and nature that we can see today in terms of the nature reserves that we have spread around 
Abu Dhabi and the rest of the UAE. We can see that passion in terms of the legislation we have, the protective legislation, the work being done by bodies like the Environment Agency. But that passion was not just reflected in legislation. In the same way that his legacy to this country is not just based upon the fancy buildings that we see around us. There was a deep personal commitment that grew out of Zaid the man, okay? His love for his country, his love for his heritage and its history, his love for its environment, and he never stopped learning or trying to learn more about it. Always curious to know. I'm sure Martin has stories of that from, from offshore. Okay? So that's something about who he was. Okay? I was very lucky to engage with him a little. I didn't have the opportunity to see him with one of his greatest love, his Arabian horses. But in front of you, in the second row, there's a man who helped to look after Sheikh Zayed's horses in Alain in the early 1970s and could tell you a wealth of information about Sheikh Zayed's passion and his knowledge and his commitment and his love for his horses. Okay? So around us, in this room, there are people who know much, much more and have many, many more tales than I do. And around us in society, people there too, okay? I said at the beginning that I thought it was important that in remembering Zayed, we don't just think of him as a legend. We don't just think of him in terms of fancy buildings, or even in terms of the education and welfare that he provided for the people of the Emirates, Emiratis and others. But something about the man, what he was like as an individual. And I'm going to close, I haven't even looked at my watch, or I haven't been told to shut up yet, but I'm going to close by saying that, by, by quoting uh, a phrase that was used by a former British political agent here, Sir Archie Lamb who knew Zayed well, he worked with Zayed. And in one of his reports back home, he said, Zayed always seems as though he has the wind of heaven blowing through his bisht. And that, if you think about it, is a pretty remarkable statement. Yes, he did have the wind of heaven blowing through his bisht. And from that inspiration, from that wind, came his passion for his country and for his people. And all of us who are here today, from the youngest, like my little girl at the front, to the oldest, who I won't bother to point out, we have all benefited so much from that passion. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, 
www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute